Matthew 10, 5 through 15. Uh, Matthew's gospel uh, records Jesus talking about the kingdom of heaven a lot. That phrase shows up, uh, as we've uh, discovered, more than 50 times in this book. The, the main aim of the book is to tell us the good news of uh, this king and his kingdom. Uh, Jesus, when it says what he's talking about, it, uh, it says that he preaches the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. And here he's sending his disciples out to do exactly the same thing. He preaches the good news of the kingdom. Now he sends the disciples. You go preach the good news of the kingdom. Uh, so what's the kingdom? The kingdom of heaven is where God's presence with his people uh, rules our reality, determines our reality. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is where we live life with God rather than apart from him or against him. The kingdom of heaven is shaped or it's defined by uh, the love of the triune God, especially the love of the incarnate son of God, Jesus. Uh, he's God with us. You know, God's presence is determining our reality in the kingdom of God. Well, God with us, that's Jesus. Uh, and so in the kingdom of heaven, we have communion with God and we participate in his own life in this world uh, through faith in Jesus, through faith in the true king. So when Jesus sends out his 12 disciples here, the apostles, as they're called, um, he gives them instructions for this particular mission, and these instructions communicate the good news of his kingdom. And it isn't just the, the explicit message that the disciples proclaim that uh, you know, teaches about the kingdom or communicates the kingdom. It's the way they're sent out. The way that they're sent out says something significant about the kingdom of heaven. So it's, in a sense, it's the means proclaim the message. Uh, so even though these specific instructions were for them, the apostles in that particular moment of the ministry of Jesus, they point to things, they teach us things that we need to consider uh, as followers of Jesus who would share the good news of his kingdom. So <clears throat> that's what we'll talk about, proclaiming the kingdom uh, this morning. Let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, give us the help of your Holy Spirit as we hear and respond to the word of your Son together now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. These 12, uh, which had just been listed right before, uh, these 12 Jesus sent out instructing them Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. <clears throat> so Jesus has been uh, ministering and serving people in this region, the region of Galilee in the northern part of uh, sort of historical Israel. Um, Jesus, he's the son of God, coming to the world as a Hebrew, 
come to his own people, the Hebrews, as their true king, redefining for them the true meaning of kingship as he comes and does his work, offering them the kingdom of heaven and calling them to repentance, calling them to be made right with God and to live a life that's in tune with God uh, through a relationship with himself. So he's been prioritizing the Jews so far in his own ministry because these, these have been the chosen people of God in the history of the world. They've been prepared by God for many centuries, all since uh, Abraham, to expect this king, to expect Jesus to come as their Messiah, their king. He's been teaching in the synagogues, right? So these are the local places in each of the towns or villages, uh, uh, the, the places for Jewish religious life together, Jewish uh, religious community. And he's been teaching and demonstrating his faithfulness to keep his promises to his people. And now... <clears throat> As he sends out his 12 uh, apostles, he tells them in so many ways, your ministry is to be an extension of my ministry. That's fundamentally what he's saying, really with everything that he says. Your ministry is to be an extension of my ministry. I'm sending you to the same places I've been going. I'm sending you to live the same way I've been living in the world. To exercise the same authority I've been exercising. To do the same things I've been doing. To proclaim the kingdom that I've been proclaiming. So he instructs them in verse 5, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So we know this is not a permanent command. uh, You're never ever to go anywhere except uh, to the Jews. Uh, It's specific to this moment in Jesus' own ministry, but it teaches us important things about Jesus. And it teaches us important things about following him and having our ministry be an extension of his ministry. I say it's not permanent, Uh, Because later in this very book, at the end of Matthew's gospel, he gives the apostles, Jesus himself, the risen Lord, gives the apostles different instructions for their ongoing mission after his resurrection and after his ascension into heaven. He says in familiar words, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Right. So that is, after the Jews had seen the kingdom of heaven come near in Christ... After his own ethnic people had received the sort of the first rite of refusal and then rejected Jesus, rejected his ways, and had him crucified by the Romans, after God had raised him from the dead and given him all authority in heaven and on earth, then it was time to take the message of his kingdom, not just to the Jews, but to all nations, to the Gentiles. Nations, Gentiles, that's the same word in Greek. So uh, it doesn't mean God is entirely and forever finished with the Jews. Uh, His purposes and his plans are his own. But this is where we are now, right? With a global mission, an international mission that extends Jesus' own ministry to the whole world. But for the moment that's recorded here, Jesus' focus was first on the Jews. First on the Jews. He's not being exclusive. He's not choosing the Jews over and against the Gentiles. But we learn from all the scriptures that his mission focus was Jews first and then also the Gentiles. So Paul says that in Romans 1. He says the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of heaven. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So so Jesus told his disciples to follow him in his focus. What he's doing, they were to do. At every point, his people are called to, to do exactly that, to be responsive to him. Right, that's, the, that's the point of this uh, calling and these instructions, is to be responsive to him, not to come up with ideas of our own for what kingdom ministry should be, Uh, but to learn from him what our mission is. The king's command comes first, not our creativity, 
not our impulses, not our ingenuity, not our innovation. The king's command comes first. And that's not just, you know, you're being called to be responsive in this way where it's a dreary duty for you to be a follower of Christ and just do what he says, as if we had to, you know, sort of reluctantly set aside our own aspirations or our own creativity in order to begrudgingly do whatever he says. This is the privilege of participating in God's mission. This is the gift of fellowship in the life of the Spirit-anointed Lord himself in this world. So this is the basic outline of the story of the Bible that we all need to know. We all need to get it firmly in our minds. In the beginning, God created humanity in his image. That says something about God and his purposes and his, his desire toward us. God created humanity in his image for a special relationship with himself, one where we reflect him like the son reflects the father. So God blessed us. The very first thing he does after creating us, he blessed us and he invited us to enjoy his own place in the world, to cultivate and rule the world with his own authority. God showed incomparable favor to to humanity in this. But humanity grew suspicious of him and rebelled, and our first parents were led to question his favor, to believe that God wanted to suppress human flourishing, to believe that God didn't want us to become like him. That's the the core of the temptation that they succumbed to and that they believed as they sinned against God that first time. They believed that God didn't want us to be like him, but that was his very purpose in in, in creating us, was that we would be like him. To become like him, to receive the gift of communion with him in a life like his in this world. So eventually, uh, to make a long story very short, the Son of God came into the world to restore that relationship in himself. Right? God became incarnate so that in the person of Jesus, humanity would live God's life in this world. Jesus is a human being living the life of God because he is the Son of God, he is God. So when we come to know Jesus personally and relationally, not just abstractly or theoretically, when we come to know him, we know what it means for a human to live God's life in this world. As we come to know Jesus through faith, through union with him by his spirit, we come to enjoy the blessing of engaging in this world, even as the incarnate son himself does. And his life, his life, isn't characterized by self-willed, self-indulging freedom. We might be suspicious that that's what God means. Being God means that that that's what he wants to keep for himself, this ability to be self-willed and self-indulgent in his freedom. But Jesus himself didn't come that way. He didn't come with his own ideas for kingdom ministry. He came to do his Father's will. He says that all the time. He learned everything from his Father, and imitated his father in everything. So we're given the same blessed opportunity to respond to the Lord Jesus, even as he responded faithfully to God the Father. That's the life of God lived out in human life, to respond faithfully to God. <clears throat> That's the privilege of restored life in his kingdom. We, we take our cue from the King of Kings and the Lord of, Lord, Lord of Lords himself. So, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, what is the urge which drives us to proclaim the saving truths of the gospel? When we talk about proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, what's the urge that drives us to do that? 
It is not just love for our fellow countrymen or for the heathen in foreign lands. It is the Lord's commission as he delivered it in his missionary charge. So I'm all for cultivating compassion for the lost. That's what we we talk about that a lot as sort of the foundation for doing mission, a foundation for evangelism, why you would open your mouth and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. I'm all for cultivating compassion for the lost because Jesus had compassion for the lost. And we talk about his compassion even last week as the good shepherd Uh, But the primary reason we do missions or evangelism or any ministry at all is because we delight to respond to the Lord Jesus. To be filled with the love of his own spirit, to, to go out in his name and to be about his own work in the world. It is granted to us to be his ambassadors, to be emissaries of the king. We talk about a privilege. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ God making his appeal through us. God making his appeal through us. So that's an incomparable gift of divine favor, especially when you consider the fact that we were all rebels convicted of treason against God's kingdom. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ means he makes traitors into his ambassadors. And there's something wonderful about the fact that the way he does that, Jesus chose to become our representative before God. And then he grants that we would now become his representative in the world before others. And none of us can arrogantly think, you know, that means I'm God's gift to the world, right? Um, Because previously we had rejected God and rejected his gift and his ways. But now, in fact, Jesus has given us as a gift to the world, to the lost, He gives converted traitors to current traitors in order to give himself to others through us. That's not something that we're entitled to. It's a gracious privilege that he gives us for our ministry to be an extension of his ministry, to go where he has gone in the world, to live as he has lived, to exercise the same authority he's exercised, and to do the same things that he's been doing as we proclaim his kingdom. That's a privilege, a gracious gracious privilege. So in verse uh, 7, he says, Proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. So the disciples are sent out to tell others about Jesus as the king, to tell about his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven itself, which means the presence of God with his people, ruling their reality, which means an invitation to join the incarnate God in his place in relationship to God and in his place in relation to the world. And that's good news that we talk about. This kind of good news was accompanied uh, in the life of the apostles there, um, accompanied by and confirmed by good works, amazingly good works, miraculous good works that can only be done with the authority of God. These are the exact same things that Jesus himself has been doing. Just look back over the previous two chapters of Matthew's gospel where you see him doing exactly these things, cleansing lepers, healing the sick, casting out demons, raising the dead. He came to bless people. He came to save people, to be good to people whose lives are in ruin because of sin, because of the brokenness of the world, and because of the spiritual oppression they suffer. Jesus has power to bless. He has authority to extend the mercy of God. His mighty works demonstrate this, and and they prove his words to be true. When he talks about the kingdom, he backs it up with these deeds of power. 
And he shared this same authority with his disciples as he sent them out so that their mighty works in his name would demonstrate and prove that their message uh, spoken in his name is true. When the apostles went out to declare the kingdom of God uh, to be a kingdom of God's blessing and favor and love, that sounds nice when you just say those words, right? But how do we know? How do we know that's true? Well, here's a miracle confirming it beyond a shadow of a doubt. Here's your sick mother healed. Here's your old friend freed from his demons. Here's your brother cleansed and restored to the community. Here's your daughter raised from the dead. Now you can know that the kingdom of heaven is a kingdom of God's blessing and favor and love. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. True healing, true spiritual freedom, true purification, true resurrection and and eternal life with God. Now you can trust the word of the Lord, the good news of his kingdom. So again, these particular gifts are not permanent expectations we should have as his followers that we would be able to do all these same things. Miraculous works. He gave the apostles this unique miraculous authority to establish their message, to establish the validity of their message about his kingdom. And once that authority had been established and validated, the authority has resided in the message itself, in the scriptures. And the power of the message is most frequently confirmed in the loveless coming to love with Christ's own love, which is probably the biggest miracle that could ever happen in a world like this. When the loveless come to love with Christ's own love, that confirms the power of the message of the kingdom of God. So we don't have the same powers of healing or exorcism or resurrection. These were always meant to illustrate the healing power, the liberating power, the cleansing power, the resurrecting power of the gospel that we proclaim. Our message has power to transform lives eternally. And we don't just uh, proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is at hand or that it's come near. That was the message that the apostles were to proclaim. Our message is that the king of heaven himself has come, that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. So knowing and believing the power of God in the crucifixion and resurrection of his son, this is the good news that has true spiritual power to make us come alive to God, to heal our relationship with God, to break spiritual strongholds in our lives, to break the grip of sin over us, to set us free for new life, bearing the fruit of the Spirit of Christ himself. There's life in his words. There's life with God in his words. His words have raised us from the dead spiritually, and now we get to speak his words after him. We get to speak the words of eternal life in the name of the one who's been crowned the Lord of life, the Lord of love, the Lord of joy, the Lord of peace, the Lord of heaven and earth. As we go out in the king's name, we're called to display our absolute dependence on him to demonstrate that our soul delight really is in him. It's in his kingdom. So he says, you received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, two tunics or sandals or a staff. So if we believe that the, the good news of the kingdom of heaven is real, that God's presence with his people is the most real reality, in this or any world, then that belief should certainly inform the means by which we engage in Jesus' mission. He tells us that we already have everything we need to follow him. We have him. We've freely received him, and we can freely offer him to others. His life is the resource for our ministry. He is the point of our ministry. So Stanley Hauerwas is a quote here. It's on the the bulletin, the bottom of the page there. It says that Jesus' command that the disciples travel light 
is necessary to manifest that they have nothing to commend other than Jesus himself. To be a follower of Jesus has not made them wealthy, powerful, or secure. They are charged to have nothing at their disposal other than the authority that they have been given by Jesus. As a result, nothing is allowed to get in the way of the witness that they make to the gospel. They cannot promise that Jesus will make his followers well-off, worry-free, successful, or any other worldly good. Rather, the promise is life in the kingdom of God. So the more we put our mission focus or our evangelism focus or our ministry focus, our church planting focus on uh, big production things like fundraising, uh, the more we run the risk of believing that we probably can't really do anything unless we get the money to do it, unless we get the resources, unless we get the donor commitments that we don't have yet. Do we really want to confess that money is our essential limiting need? Do we really want to confess that money is our greatest goal or our our prize? Jesus alone is our treasure and our spiritual resource, and we all already have him. We carry nothing of true value except for the message of Jesus and his kingdom. And we carry the fullness of the riches of his grace, whether we are rich or poor. We confess this as we trust him and follow him and participate in what he's doing, even if it appears to the world that we would be hilariously, naively under-equipped. Normally, he does provide for our earthly needs, through the hospitality and generosity of his people as we share the bounty of his life and his kingdom together. So he says, at the end of verse 10, he says, the laborer deserves his food. This is picked up by Paul in 1 Timothy 5. He says, the scriptures say, and then he quotes Jesus here, which is to say Jesus' word is scripture, the holy word of God. Paul picks up this theme And he applies it in particular to elders in the church uh, whose lives are devoted, set apart for service, especially the ministry of the word, the proclamation of the gospel. He says again in, in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, The Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So this is the provision God makes. Again, a great and gracious privilege that ministers and missionaries and those who proclaim the gospel, would be financially supported in in that work. And he says, whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. So here's Luke's version of that. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. That's the greeting that Jesus says to give. Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. So we go to extend a message of peace in the name of Christ. The message we carry is a message of peace, and the means by which we deliver it should also convey that peace. That, that makes sense. You can't go around, you know, hacking people down, saying, the peace of Christ be with you, and also with you. <laughs> you know, it's not how it works. Uh, maybe no one is proposing literal crusades anymore where we do that and pick up the sword and extend the kingdom through bloody conquest. But there are certainly aggressive Christians whose attitude toward unbelievers is hostile and condemning, who just want to win an argument and defeat the opponent. The means proclaim the message. If we've received God's gracious blessing 
freely, the incomparable favor of traitors sharing in God's life in this world. We cannot think that an attitude of mocking unbelievers or an attitude of attacking unbelievers will communicate the blessing of God's kingdom. The first impression we give to others is meant to be one of peace, of goodwill, of reconciliation, of mercy and grace, not one of condemnation. And this is what it looks like for converted traders to serve current traders. Uh, But we can't manage the outcomes. We're not called to do that. It's impossible for us to do it. We don't need to worry about it. We can't manage the outcomes. We cannot create true peace between others and God. We cannot create true peace between others and ourselves by simply wishing them peace or speaking words of peace or coming to them with an attitude of peace in the name of Christ. You can't manage those outcomes. Jesus is saying that our message is fundamentally one of peace, but it also has to find a reception. The hearers of the message of peace have to resonate with it. But basically, peace will truly manifest when people believe the gospel of Jesus Christ in response to hearing that message of peace. So the scriptures show that that's God's business, to prepare such people to be sons of peace that we encounter when we go, right? So, so that when we come with a message of peace, they're ready to receive it. And that takes a great deal of pressure off of us as messengers of the gospel. We cannot and we are not expected to manufacture results. We are called to faithfully look to Jesus, to respond to him by proclaiming the message of peace and to leave the results to God one way or another. And of course, it's easy to celebrate what God is doing when people respond positively to the gospel that we proclaim. But even when they reject our message, even when they reject the peace with God that is offered by Christ, even that is actually a privilege of participation in the life and the work of Jesus. It says in verse 13, if they're not worthy, let your peace return to you. That... Fret not yourself because of evildoers, as uh, Jennifer read in our Old Testament reading from Psalm 37. Let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it'll be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. So we don't come with a message of condemnation. We don't come with a message of judgment that we don't lead off with Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Uh, But Jesus does exercise his authority as judge when we come faithfully with a message of peace and are met with rejection. Jesus looks to spare us from depression and despair as if we had failed in our faithfulness when we face rejection for the sake of the gospel. We'll talk about that more next week, uh, but here's what Luke records Jesus saying here at this point in Luke 10. He says, the one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So again, the solidarity of Jesus with his his people, the privilege that we're given of participating in his life. When we come in the name of Jesus, when we come on his behalf, in the power of his word, we represent the one who is Lord and judge. There's a real representation there. People who reject us, they're not just rejecting us. They're rejecting the King of Heaven, the Lord Jesus himself, just as they're also rejecting God the Father, whom Jesus represents. We represent to people their relationship with God. The privilege of that is unimaginable, unspeakable 
We represent to people their relationship with God. Their relationship with us has eternal significance because they're ultimately relating to God through us as we faithfully represent him in this world. So even as we're rejected for proclaiming his good news, even as it means bad news for those who are doing the rejecting, it still means good news for us to share in the life of the rejected one who truly is the Lord and judge of all. Jesus says more about this. Again, we'll look at that next week. Let's just finish up with the warning that he gives here. Jesus is anticipating the rejection of his message, of his work, of his very person, by his own people, the Jews. He speaks ironically uh, when he tells his followers, you know, shake the dust off their feet when they leave the Jewish houses or towns where they've been met with rejection. The Jews often made that a practice. They, they, they would shake the dust off their feet and off their clothing whenever they left uh, the territory of those unclean Gentiles, those sinners out there, right? It was a way of distancing themselves from the judgment of God that surely rested on those people because of how bad they were. It was a declaration of judgment that the Jews did. And no place deserved judgment more in the Jewish mindset than Sodom and Gomorrah. It was a place defined by, absolutely defined by, their extreme sinfulness, their rebellion against God. And God annihilated that place. Read about it in Genesis 19. Uh, He rained sulfur and fire down on it until it was utterly overthrown, nothing but a smoking furnace, that land. They had refused life with God. And so God removed them from the land of the living. And Jesus said, unless his own ethnic people heard the good news of the kingdom of heaven and responded to the message of peace with faith in the true king, their own judgment would be more severe than that of Sodom and Gomorrah. Their judgment hinged on their relationship with Jesus and only on their relationship with Jesus. In fact, the eternal judgment of all people hinges on their relationship with Jesus, on how they respond to him on how they respond to us as we come proclaiming the gospel of his kingdom. We go at the command of the king of heaven with the resources of the king, trusting in the provision of the king, with nothing to offer but the life of the king, with words of peace from the king himself. Our ministry is an extension of his ministry. We go to the places where he's gone, to the kinds of people he's gone to, to live the same way he's lived in the world, to exercise the same authority he's exercised to do the same things he's done as we proclaim the gospel. He's called us to share life, the life of God. And as it's gone with him, so it will go with us. That's the wonderful mystery of the kingdom of heaven, the blessing, the good news of the kingdom of heaven. So let's proclaim it in his name. Amen. Let's pray. Father, your son has called us to proclaim his kingdom. Help us to see all of this from a new angle, in light of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're prone to be suspicious of your commands, your will for our lives. Help us to believe that you've always wanted unparalleled glory for us. Help us to engage in the glory of your calling with delight. Help us to carry the message of the gospel, the message of your peace, through the sacrifice of your Son, And to communicate only this message through our words and through our actions. Grant us the joy of seeing other rebels quit their resistance and receive this gift. And sustain us in our fellowship with you when we meet with rejection in this world. 
in all things, set our hearts and our minds on Jesus, on the privilege of relating to you as he does, the privilege of living your very life in this world and representing you in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.